Welcome to the Calvary Limerick Podcast, the teaching ministry of Pastor David Cowper. We're a church that seeks to live together before the face of God. We hope today's message blesses you. There was another witness, or even more than a witness, the king's brother, the prince's uncle. He watched on from a safe, high vantage point as his brother was killed. He saw whatever the power equivalent of dollar signs is in his eyes. In fact, the mob and the location of the prince, the fact the king knew where his son was in the first place, all of it was the uncle's plan. He devised the scheme in order to make himself king. Where there was one problem, the prince didn't die as he had planned. That left him with a political opponent, someone who could take the throne from him, someone with more right to rule than he had. He knew he'd have to do something Killing his nephew hadn't worked, so instead he'd have to convince the young prince that he was going to be to blame for his father's death. And so he fleed or fled to a foreign land to avoid the potential that he could be killed, which allowed his evil brother to rule as king for a number of years, where the true king would one day come back. When you start to think about it, there are easy parallels to draw between the story we have just heard, which is, by the way, Disney's The Lion King, and the early part of Jesus' life. Just like Simba, the rightful king, he was opposed by Scar. Jesus, the rightful king, was opposed by Herod. Scar had power, not like Mufasa did, but he had power and relevance. And when his nephew was to become king, his power and relevance would dwindle. Herod, as we will see, was a man who was obsessed with maintaining his power. He wasn't going to let some kid born in Bethlehem take away his power and relevance, even if his wise men believed this kid was the Messiah like we saw last month. The true king of the Jews, that was the Messiah, sorry. Simba and the Lion King had to flee to the land of Hakuna Matata with Timon and Pumbaa, and Jesus, as we will see, had to flee from his homeland too. So today we're going to be in the second half of Matthew chapter 2 starting at verse 13 and then going right to the end. In this part of the story, we'll see how Jesus' family dealt with a man who was anti-majesty, which is what's on the sign outside. But before we read that, we'll just do our quick recap. Like at the start of a TV show, previously in the Gospel of Matthew. We've seen that Matthew is interested in showing the kingship of Jesus, and so he began his story thousands of years before Jesus' birth, showing that he had a human legal right to be considered king. Then he showed that Jesus was special and different and distinct by showing that he had a divine right to be king, which Matthew does by recording the miraculous details around the birth of Christ and those early years, as well as through recording the details of the Magi coming and how he fulfilled prophecies that were centuries old about the one that God promised to send. We get the story then from Matthew of the Magi, or the wise men who come from the east to Jerusalem and meet the current king, Herod. He's a bit like that guy who's looking after Gondor in the third Lord of the Rings that goes crazy and tries to burn himself and his son alive when he thinks he'll lose the kingdom. That's how I think of Herod. Herod finds out where the Messiah is to be born, sends the Magi on their way, but tells them to report back because he wants to go and recognize Jesus and he wants to worship him as well. Of course, that's not what he actually wants to do. And we saw the three wise men give, or the three wise men, these wise men, we don't know if there were three, gave three gifts 
to Jesus that recognized not just his majesty, but the work that God had sent him to do in a symbolic way. And so the last verse where we left off, we left Herod waiting for some news from the wise men, but they had gone home a different way because they'd been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. So I'm just going to read Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 down to the end. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Today's message is really going to be a comparison. I had originally planned to do this whole chapter altogether last month, but there was too much to be said, and I think the Holy Spirit had other plans, because I was going to compare the wise men's reaction to the birth of Christ to Herod's reaction to the birth of Christ. But I think that would have been missing the real comparison that's in this chapter. Because the real comparison is between two kings, Jesus and Herod. In this world, there are two ways of gaining power, and they are shown in vivid colors in this passage. We will see how Jesus went about power, and we'll see how Herod went about establishing his power. So I want to state up front what I think the passage is about. That there are two kinds of king, and there are two kinds of power. Power from God and power from the devil. And this passage goes, goes into contrasting them a little bit. And we need to see the differences and the different sources of power that are at work in our lives as well. In the first few verses, chapter, verses 13 to 15, we hear the story of an angel coming to Joseph in a dream. We've seen this happen in a number of times now in the first two chapters of Matthew. This is Joseph's second dream with an instruction from God, and the wise men got one as well. There seems to be an increased presence of God giving angelic visiting dreams at the time of Jesus' birth. Joseph has another one telling him later to go to Nazareth. In this dream, Joseph is told to get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt because Herod was going to come against Jesus. To us, that sounds weak. Let's be honest here. Hollywood, books, our culture, if you've even done anti-bullying classes in school, all of these things will tell you not to flee, but to stand your ground, 
to face your fears, to battle through these things. But note that Joseph didn't flee because he was scared or because he couldn't face what was coming. He did it because God told him to flee. Christian, it's important to realize that there will be times in your life when God will tell you to flee. His power will be found not in staying and facing the battle, but in your legs as you hightail it out of there. If God says flee and you stay, you're essentially saying no to God. And to say no to God puts you outside the will of God, which is not somewhere you want to be. But don't take my word for it. Let's look at the Bible. We've got a command to flee here to Joseph, but there are more. There's another one in Matthew chapter 14, when Jesus says that when the people living in Israel at the time of the abomination that causes desolation, which we'll look at more when we get to Matthew chapter 14, they're to flee. And even if they're in the field, they shouldn't even go home and get their coat. They should just turn, run, and get out of Israel. But more relevant to us, there are a couple of verses. One is 1 Timothy 6, 9 to 11. Paul here is talking about the love of money, and he commands Timothy to flee it and to pursue righteousness instead. It says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And then to Timothy as well, Paul says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. In 2 Timothy 2.22. When you think of youthful passions, you probably automatically are drawn in your mind to sexual temptation. And there's certainly part of what Paul is saying to Timothy in that. But it's wider than that. It can be a reference to other things as well. It would include that, but it could also include the desire to be rich that Paul has previously mentioned that Timothy should flee from. It could also be the desire for fame or acknowledgement or to be respected or well looked upon, what a lot of people today call an influencer. It could be about quarreling or fighting. The next few verses talk about quarreling and fighting. But we can see that there are times in the Bible that we're called to flee. Not to fight, but to flee. A good friend of mine was living a good life. He, had, he was doing well in college, had a good internship with the promise of a job in one of the top tech companies in the world. He had a girlfriend whom he would happily have married, but his life, which was successful by the world standards, was dead in God's eyes. And when Jesus found him he became a, and he became a Christian, God called him to flee. He left the college course, the internship, the girlfriend, even where he was living, and followed the Lord to where God called him, which is like a modern-day version of this call to flee. So sometimes the Bible calls us to stand, but other times we're called to flee. And in this instance, Jesus' family was called to flee and to go to Egypt. Jesus didn't have to flee. Let's have that clear. Even though he was a baby, he was still God. He could have called down a legion of angels, like he talks about when he's older, to defend him. But the way of power in God's kingdom doesn't look the same as what we would think it looks like because of the world we live in. So Joseph has the dream to flee, 
and he wakes up and obeys. He takes his wife and the baby Jesus and he does what God asks and heads on down to Egypt. The Egyptian border was about 90 miles away from Bethlehem, or like 150 kilometers. Once they were over the border, they would be safe from Herod because Egypt was outside his jurisdiction. He couldn't get them there. At this time in history, Egypt had become a safe place for Jews to live. There were about one million Jewish people living in the area around Alexandria. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus would certainly have been welcomed and looked after by their own people who were there. And if needs be, they had the gifts from the wise men that they could sell to pay for their needs, to get there, to get back, and for their time in Egypt. It would have been more than enough. We have noted before that one of the things that Matthew likes to do is point out how the life of Jesus fulfills prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. And in verse 15, we have another one. Matthew quotes Hosea chapter 2, verse 15. And that's where he says, um, out of Egypt I called my son. When he says Jesus fled to Egypt to fulfill the prophecy that God has called his son out of Egypt. Hosea, when he said this, is referring to the Exodus, not to the Messiah. However, the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit working through Hosea made him write words that would have a double meaning. One meaning looking back to the time of the Exodus from Egypt, and one looking forward to Jesus' own time in Egypt and being called back to the promised land by God. When Jesus and his family were safely in Egypt, word comes to Herod that the wise men are not coming back to him. I don't know if it was just that too much time had passed, so he came to the realization himself that they weren't coming back. Maybe he had scouts that saw them leaving the borders of Israel, heading back to their own land. My favorite speculation, which I read somewhere, is perhaps they sent him a postcard from Babylon. Anyway, somehow Herod came to know that he had been tricked and that they weren't coming back. Herod was an interesting man. In terms of power and the way of this world, he was very successful. He was an Edomite, which is a country south of Israel, and it was founded by Esau, who was Jacob's brother, Jacob being the founder of Israel. There was a lot of historical animosity between the two nations. Last month, we mentioned the Hasmodean dynasty, kings that came to power in Israel after freeing the nation from the rule of Greece. When Herod was a boy, his father Antipater was the ruler of Edom. They had converted to Judaism, but they were seen like a little bit like the Samaritans by real Jews. They didn't really trust that they had converted. There was a particular king, and he was forced to flee Jerusalem when his brother wanted power. And Herod's father came into alliance with this king to get his throne back. And when that happened, he appointed his two sons to be rulers, one in Judea, and the other, Herod, in Galilee, to help that king to cement his rule. This all happened in 47 BC. And then Mark Anthony of Rome, he recognized the appointment of Herod into this position in 41 BC. Then another of this king's relatives, his nephew, attempted to take the throne. And the king, that king, he sent Herod over to Rome to get support. But instead, the Roman Senate, under the guidance of Mark Antony, decided that Herod should be king of Judea instead. And so he led a Roman army back to Jerusalem, taking it and establishing his own power there, replacing the previous dynasty, the Hasmonean one. 
and he ruled from 37 BC until his death in 4 BC. History remembers this man as Herod the Great. This is because in the eyes of the world, he was extremely successful. He followed the world's pattern of gaining powers by alliances and military might with Rome, and then he held his power by worldly means. He married a Hasmonean princess, the granddaughter of the king he replaced, but he later had her and her two sons that he had by her executed because people were waiting for him to die so that his son, a half Hasmonean, would be king and a proper Jewish king again. He also banished his other sons. He had opponents rounded up and he killed people and he banned people from even protesting against him. But Rome loved him. Even though he was in with Mark Anthony, when Mark Anthony and Cleopatra fought against Octavian, Herod stayed in favor when Octavian or Emperor Augustine, he won. And he was even gifted Cleopatra's Celtic bodyguard, who I'm assuming are people from Ireland, but I don't know. He, allowed, he was allowed to rule in Israel however he saw fit, but his power didn't extend outside of the borders of Israel, which is what made Egypt safe. Herod couldn't follow Jesus there. Herod is remembered in history for being a master builder, like in the Lego movie. He, is, he embellished the temple in Jerusalem, but he also added a Roman gold eagle to its entrance, which got trouble later. He built five massive forts, which were mostly protect, to protect him in case the Jews rebelled against him. And he built a harbor on the coast of Israel using the latest underwater technology. But he also built pagan cities and temples to appease pagan citizens of Roman Israel and to keep the Romans happy too. And then he finally, he also enlarged the temple complex, expanding it to what we now today call Temple Mount and the Wailing or the Western Wall of which that he built, it's still there 2,000 years later. Modern historians often remark at the success of Herod as a builder and as a king, securing his power, his kingdom and his dynasty. But he did all of these things with the earth's way of gaining and maintaining power. The power of the earth comes from Satan. That's where Herod's power was from. And that sort of power is insecure, unstable, unsure of itself, and needs to preserve itself. It's interesting to me that at the end of this successful king's life, God sent another king, Jesus, to Herod's kingdom. And the way of Jesus, the way he claimed his throne, the way he became king, could not be more different to how Herod did it. If Herod became a king and maintained his power by the way of Satan, Jesus does the same thing by the way of God. And that's why I went so much into Herod's history, into so much detail, because it's when you can see a little bit of an overview, I could have gone more, I had seven pages of notes on his life. When you go into it in, in detail, you can see the difference in the way God expresses his power and calls us as Christians to be powerful compared to the alluring and enticing power that the world holds up as a good idea. Jesus is a threat to Herod's power. His power is not found in God. It's insecure, it's unstable, and he needs to secure it. That's why Herod does what he does next. He learned where the wise men went to visit, where the king of the Jews was to be born, and by learning before where the star was, had appeared in the sky and they started to follow it, he was able to guesstimate the age of this baby. So Herod sends his soldiers into Bethlehem with orders to kill every baby boy in the town that is two years old and under. 
It's horrible and it's a massacre. Bethlehem was small and relatively insignificant as a town at the time. The population of boys under two could have been as low as 20, but probably was around 50 because it talks about the surrounding area in the verse as well. But either way, killing one person to have your own way is one person too many. Let's just read verses 17 and 18 again. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Ramah is another name for Bethlehem. And the prophecy here is another one of those ones with a double meaning. Rachel's weeping has a long history in Israel. Rachel died in Bethlehem after giving birth to her second son, Benjamin, later became one of the tribes. And then later in Jeremiah's time, when this prophecy was written, the people of Israel were being brought into captivity, and as they were led out of Jerusalem, they went out through Bethlehem, which was nearby. It's like it's almost a suburb of Jerusalem today. And as they were being brought into captivity, their mothers were weeping, seeing them being led out. Jeremiah personified those mothers as Rachel. And that is what he's directly referencing when he says a voice was heard in Ramah, which is Bethlehem. Matthew then quotes Jeremiah, seeing the weeping of the mothers again, but as Herod kills their babies. There are interesting parallels between Benjamin and Jesus as well. He was born in Rachel's sorrow as she was dying, so she named him Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. And Jesus is called the man of sorrows in Isaiah. Benjamin's name was later changed, obviously, to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. And Jesus is now at the right hand of the father. Here we have Rachel weeping at the start of Benjamin's life and Rachel weeping at the start of Jesus's life as well. So we come to the last little bit of the story we're going to look at today. Herod has died, so it's 4 BC. So the Lord comes to Joseph in a dream and tells him to go back to the land of Israel. And Joseph again obeys the Lord. I've said it before, but I hope you still feel challenged by the obedience of Joseph. Every time he has a dream, he just goes and does what the Lord says. He knows of God's love for him and he obeys, knowing God has the best for his little family in mind. I just wonder, is that your situation? Are you able to confidently know that God has your best interests at heart? If you know that, it's a lot easier to obey and go when he says. So Joseph and Mary and Jesus come back to Israel, but they learn that Archelaus, Herod's son, was in power. This Archelaus followed the way of power of his father, Herod, or really Satan. He promised to be a good and kind king, but within a few days of taking over, he too ordered a massacre. Joseph would have been right to be scared of him, but his reign did not last long. He, in 6 AD, he went to Rome to be crowned, but the Jews sent a delegation after him to complain about him, and Rome decided not to give him the crown, but to rule Judea and Samaria directly themselves with a governor, which is where you eventually get Pontius Pilate. And Jesus seems to reference this in one of his parables in Luke chapter 19, but we don't have time to go look at that. Joseph has another dream once he gets back to Israel. And that dream sends him and his little family north to Nazareth. This was part of Galilee known as Galilee of the Gentiles, a non-Jewish part of Israel. 
And that's where Jesus would grow up. And he's often referred to, as you probably know, as Jesus of Nazareth. And I like that Joseph is the one that gets all the dreams. It reminds me of the Old Testament with Joseph, the dreamer. It seems to be, if you want to have your kid having, having dreams from God, call them Joseph. So we know Jesus is our king, but can you see the difference in how Jesus comes into power and uses that power in these small stories and how different it is to how Herod and his family came into power and used their power? Herod was successful, but he was harsh. He killed people, and as well as this, he was insecure and needed to maintain his power and ensure that it continued. On the other hand, Jesus didn't fight, he fled. He moved to Nazareth. Jesus is gentle and kind when we compare him to Herod. Jesus' power is sure and certain. Not even the king of the land could stop Jesus as much as he tried to. There's no insecurity when it comes to God's power. Sadly, even as Christians, we tend towards following the way of Herod and not the way of Jesus. We try to secure our positions. We worry about controlling things. We make bad decisions based on making sure that we will be okay. We rely a lot on our strengths and our abilities. Instead, the Bible tells us that it is when we are weak that God is strong through us. Listen to what Paul wrote that God said to him in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. But he, that's God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We think we need to do things in our own power so much. We often relate to God in a way that's based on our performance or the things that we have done for God. But that's not the way of God. That's the way of Herod, or really the way of the devil. Instead, God tells us that his grace is sufficient for us. You'll find I have one message from the whole Bible that can be summed up in two parts. Part one, Jesus is supreme, he is the hero, and his love is very wonderful. And part two is summed up in this verse, his grace is sufficient for you. When we talk about the grace of God, we often think of our salvation, for it is by grace you have been saved and not by works, Ephesians says. But here we see it's for more than that. God's grace is our power too. He is strong in our weakness by the grace he freely gives us. Our salvation is by grace, but so is our empowerment. When God tells us to do things like be obedient to him, when he commands something as he did with Joseph in the dreams in this story, he knows we need his grace to empower us to obey and he freely gives it. One of the songs we're going to be singing next has the line, your grace is an ocean that never runs dry. And that's so true. There is endless grace for us, grace upon grace, grace to save us and grace to empower us. Just as an aside while we're talking about this verse, you've probably heard it said, God will never give you or God will never put you through more than you can handle. That's nowhere in the Bible. And you will have a very unhappy life if you go thinking, that's true and that's biblical. Everything about life and Christianity and our salvation is stuff we cannot handle. We can't handle our sin, so Jesus came to die for us. We can't handle living a holy life, so Jesus empowers us to do it. We can't handle living for God, so the Holy Spirit dwells in us and helps us to. 
We can't handle breaking free from the bondage of sin ourselves. So God does that in us by the power of the Spirit and the resource of his grace. There's a lot in life we can't handle. However, when Paul couldn't handle the thorn in his side, which is the context of 2 Corinthians 12, 9, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. This seems so contrary to everything we've been brought up to think. It's actually when we humbly realize that we're weak and we seek God's grace and power that we're able to get through our difficult times, defeat sin in our lives, and succeed in our Christian walks. We feel the need to be strong, to demonstrate our strength by like a show of force, like Herod did in Bethlehem or his son did in Jerusalem, but that's actually weakness. It's by following the way of Jesus that we're strong. In our weakness, God can work, God can move, and God receives the glory. So we've just one more verse to look at before we close. That's the very last one, verse 23. It says, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is an interesting bit by Matthew, because nowhere in the Old Testament will you find any reference to the Messiah being called a Nazarene or being from Nazareth. Nazareth, as we already have mentioned, was in Galilee of the Gentiles, a non-Jewish part of Israel. True Jews looked down on it, and even later in Jesus' life, someone hears about him and they say, oh, he's Jesus of Nazareth, and the guy says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Most commentators seem to think that this thing that he says, that the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene, comes from the Hebrew word for branch, which is used to talk about Jesus a lot in the Old Testament. For example, it's in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2, and 11, verse 1. It's in Jeremiah 23, verse 5, and Zechariah 6, 12, and 13. And that Hebrew word is, I'm going to make it butchers of trying to pronounce it, Netzer, which is similar to the Hebrew word for Nazareth, which is Netzareth. So Matthew may have been recognizing that many of the prophets noted that Jesus would be the Netzer, or the branch, and then it turned out that he came from Nazareth, which sounded very similar. But that's just a guess. I don't know what the Holy Spirit was saying to Matthew exactly when he wrote that. So we're going to stop there for today. When we meet again in September, baby Jesus will be all grown up. But I want you to notice something as we close. I'm actually going to quote a writer called Green. He was commenting on this section of the Bible. He said, The whole unsavory story of Herod's activity and all of this is an awesome reminder of how deeply opposition can be rooted in the hearts of people who are not prepared to allow Jesus' gentle rule to control them. Guys, let's not be those people. Even as Christians, we can be opposed to the gentle rule of Jesus, but his rule is gentle and his love is sure. He only wants what is best for us, even in times we cannot see how what he is doing is the best. There's a promise in the Bible that's given to us, and it's a very stereotypical Bible verse, but one that's so true. In Romans 8:28, it says, all things work together for good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That's everything. There's nothing outside of God's power, not even Herod, not even us, when we're acting in our own power, we're in opposition against God. God can work it all out for good. Jesus came and lived as this little baby, but he grew up too. 
And when he did, he completed the mission that God sent him to earth for. He lived the perfect life, fulfilling the law of God in our place, and he died on the cross, taking our punishment onto himself. That's the essence of the gospel. The good news is that we can live by grace through faith, not in our own power, but embracing our weakness, being humble, and seeing him being strong through us. One more quote from Michael Green, and then I'm going to pray. Opposition is inevitable, but it will never, in the providence of God, be allowed to quench God's mission. Let's pray. God, we just thank you that you are powerful. We thank you that you have done so much for us. We thank you for the cross that seems so counterintuitive to call that powerful, Lord, but that is how you work. God, we pray that as we come to know you more, that as we get to know you more, as we know who you are and what you have called us to be as Christians, Lord, we would follow you more because of your grace that you have given to us. Lord, I pray that each of us would experience that sufficient grace this week, but we can only experience it if we humble ourselves, if we're not trying to do things in our own power, if we're not trying to stand on our own two feet, but if we're trusting in you and leaning on you because it's in our weakness that you are strong, Lord. So God, I pray that you would be strong in us this week. Lord, I thank you that nothing can stop the plans that you have, that you've been building your church since this time and Herod couldn't stand against it, and you continue to build your church today. And you continue to work in us, Lord, bringing the work that you have started to completion. We thank you, God, for who you are and for what you've done, and pray that we would all just know that and experience that this week. In your name we pray. Amen.